Welcome back to Primer, the podcast about all things Amazon. I'm your host, Alex Press, and this week I spoke with Heike Geisler, the author of Seasonal Associate, a book that I've mentioned on the show before, which is a fictionalized account of Heike's time working in an Amazon warehouse in Germany. But first, the usual housekeeping. I keep all the episodes of this show free, but to compensate me for the project, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Primer Podcast. If you sign up, the episodes are all up there, but you'll also get show notes, which are brief annotated bibliographies of key sources I use for the week's episode, as well as video of some of our interviews. And of course, you'll get my gratitude. To the 73 people who've subscribed, thank you. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash primer podcast. Now, before we get to my conversation with Heike, we need to discuss the big Amazon news of the week, which is that the NLRB hearing officer, who has been overseeing the hearings over the union election in Bessemer, Alabama, has issued a recommendation on the case. The union, RWDSU, had filed several objections over Amazon's behavior during the election. And again, though you've heard about it, I'm sure, many times at this point, if you're listening to this episode, that election period took place during February and March, and the votes were tallied and announced in April. The union lost two to one in that initial tally, with some 500 contested votes. RWDSU then filed a a set of objections to Amazon's behavior during that mail-in ballot period, leading to hearings that lasted a few weeks in May, and now this recommendation. In short, the recommendation says that the agency should throw out the results and hold a second union election. To talk about that, I'm joined by a Chicago labor lawyer, Will Bloom. Will, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. So let's start with the basics of this recommendation. So to be clear, this is not a final ruling from the NLRB. What's happened is that the hearing officer overseeing this case has issued their recommendation, which is a lengthy report. That then will go to the regional director in Atlanta. And from there, it can be appealed, right? Can you talk about what's going to happen? This is uh, basically the hearing officer's report on the objections that the union raised here. The hearing officer's report serves as a recommendation to the regional director. Functionally speaking, the regional director pretty much always agrees with the hearing officer. Um, you know, the hearing officer is not a political appointee. They're a, a career civil servant. From what the regional director says, um, Amazon is, of course, able to appeal that to the National Labor Relations Board. Um, however, uh, recently, the Senate confirmed two Biden appointees to the board. Um, one for a Republican's term that expires at the end of August. So by the time it reaches the board, there'll be a Democratic majority. Um, and I think w- it would be fair to, to guess that that board will uphold um, the hearing officer's recommendations here as affirmed by the regional director. From there, they can appeal the decision of the NLRB to a federal circuit court. Okay, great. So the thing I had seen at least in the preliminary talk about what this means, is that there could be a rerun election held by the end of this year. Um, That is possible, yeah. The appeals could drag that out, but that's not a a wild timeline to to anticipate. Okay, great. So I want to get into what is in the the report that was written and released today, the day we're recording. Um, So it's lengthy. I think instead of going through it, I just want to ask for you, what were the sort of key takeaways or most notable things that they found? Sure. So, um, you know, as you said, the basic finding here is that Amazon uh, interfered with what's called the laboratory conditions for the election. The idea for for um, recognition elections run by the NLRB is that they should have as close as possible to what they call laboratory conditions, meaning like if these workers in a vacuum, you know, protected from uh, undue interference, make their decision, the result would be the same. 
Um, the union filed about 20 objections, but most of them focused on this mailbox, which I think you've talked about on the show before. Amazon basically forced, like convinced USPS to install a mail collection unit right on site um, in view of their security cameras. Um, and for a variety of reasons, this report held that uh, that constituted undue interference and recommended a rerun election. Um, that's kind of the, the big uh, substantive takeaway that will have some impact, although I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in here uh, that goes beyond that kind of bottom line recommendation. Yeah, I mean, the mailbox stuff is kind of nuts. When I was reading through the report, you know, and there had been reporting on this, on these allegations before today, um, but the NLRB hearing officer upheld a lot of the stuff that had been reported out, which is that Amazon basically had USPS do their bidding to bust a union, right? It's They go through the fact that Amazon was emailing them, sort of saying, no, we want this specific sort of Dropbox. Yours isn't up to snuff. We want it here, not there. You need to get it done by this timeline. And the words of the report, um, they call it Amazon's unilateral decision to install this mailbox, right? The union did not want this. And in fact, you know, as I'd written in the lead up to the election, Amazon was pushing really hard for an in-person vote. And then they lost that because the NLRB rightly, I think, said, you know, that's dangerous to the workers. There's COVID outbreaks in this county and so on. We're having a mail-in ballot. Um, and Amazon still went ahead and got this done. And the report says that, quote, in an effort to placate the employer, the USPS officials at the highest levels jump through hoops to basically fit Amazon specifications, which is nuts because this is a, you know, this is a state agency. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, there there's a paragraph in there where uh, the hearing officer describes Amazon as giving USPS a deadline for installing this mailbox. And the response was from the like senior vice president of USPS operations, basically saying like, yes, sir, right away, sir, we're getting this done. One, one of the tests that the hearing officer applies here is like, would uh, employees have the sense that the that the, the employer was running the election and not the government? And like, I have a sense that the employer was running the election based on some of these findings. Right. And I mean, I think people who have listened to the show might be familiar with the fact that employers, of course, often try to break the law or do break the law, not only during union elections, but also in the course of regular bargaining and dealing with the union. But this is like above and beyond, right? This mailbox thing seems extraordinary that Amazon had the power to do that. Yeah. Well, and I, uh, I think there was one quote that really jumped out at me when, when I was reading this report, because one of Amazon's arguments was, well, there's no existing decision saying that getting USPS to install a mailbox uh, is, is, is prohibited conduct in one of these kinds of elections. And the, the hearing officer's response to that is, uh, I'll read the quote here. The employer fails to appreciate that this conduct has never occurred before because few, if any, employers have the means, the will, and the influence to cause the installation of a mail receptacle at their location in under six weeks for the sole purpose of providing employees a method of returning their mail ballots. Like the, the hearing officer is basically saying, you are so powerful that this has never come up before. That's the only reason we haven't, we don't have established law on this. And I, I think it speaks to just how above and beyond Amazon, you know, elsewhere they talk about how Amazon was running 18 hour day long um, captive audience meetings. Like they really went to the mat to fight this union. Right. I mean, this is another interesting part of the report is that they, the officer actually uses language that, you know, made me think, did I write this? You know, they said, you know, Amazon had, quote, a cadre of private paid consultants, um, the anti-union law firms, right, that they were that spending a ton of money. I don't think it's been reported how much, though. Obviously, it's 
estimated that they're spent millions of dollars on having, you know, the top dollar union busters come in and help direct how it works in these anti-union campaigns is they direct the management at the shop floor level to be the sort of frontline soldiers in this war, right? So it's not some fancy lawyers that are coming in that are directing, you know, the employees not to vote for a union because that would seem obviously maybe suspicious or fraudulent. Instead, it's it's really the frontline supervisors who are at the warehouse who are doing this. And yeah, as you said, the officer notes that this was happening six days a week, 18 hours a day. They're running just constant mandatory captive audience meetings, which again, you know, beyond being key sites of misinformation, of course, are also just a signal that the company is going to do anything it can to stop a union from existing, right? Again, Amazon famously does not have time for anyone to do anything, whether it's go to the bathroom or take a break or sit down or or talk to each other. But all of a sudden they have all the time in the world to have you sit and listen to one of your supervisors tell you all about the union and answer your questions. And importantly, that's all legal, right? None of that. The union did actually object to some of those things. And the officer said, I think tellingly for all of us listening to the show, that's perfectly legal. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's part of what's remarkable here. Had they not pushed so hard for this mailbox, um, there would not be a recommendation of a rerun election. So much of what Amazon did here uh, is, I mean, you know, virtually everything they did here is totally legal. I think what's remarkable is the scale at which they did all of these things that uh, are, I think, deeply objectionable, but totally within the bounds of the law. Right. So, you know, you're a lawyer. What's your perspective on how this gets changed, right? I mean, because the, the sad reality of this is this is all legal. The regime of labor law in this country is stacked against workers at every stage of the process. And there's very little redress, right? Amazon, at most, will have to face a rerun election. There's nothing that stops them from doing the exact same thing again, as long as they don't break the law and install a mailbox again. Right. And, and I think that's part of what's wild here is that, you know, and you've talked about on, on this show, the, the enormous amount of turnover. I think that that latest report showed 150% a year turnover. And, you know, by the time this election, this rerun election happens, it may be as much as a year and a half to two years since... Um, RWDSU showed up on the scene. Uh, So, you know, in terms of how the law changes, I mean, some of these things are a matter of NLRB precedent. Um, I, I'm, you know, I think these Biden appointees are probably fairly solid labor lawyers. I don't know how aggressive they're going to get. There are things that um, an aggressive NLRB could do. Um, For instance, there's a pretty high standard for, uh, when employee misconduct in an election should just result in the board ordering recognition and ordering bargaining. That's called the Gasell standard. Um, Brandon Magner has written about how we should go back to the Joyce Silk standard. So there's stuff like that. But a lot of this fundamentally is only going to change um, when the law changes. And the law is downstream of the organizing. So we really have to, you know, we in the left, we in the labor movement um, have to do the kind of nationwide organizing that would be necessary Um to push for these kinds of legal changes. You know, the, the National Labor Relations Act, the law that uh, governs all of this, only got passed because of a massive strike wave in the middle of the 30s that basically made regulating this in the level of the government and recognizing some of these rights more palatable uh, to those in Washington. And it may take something similar. Right. I mean, where does that leave the PRO Act then, if that's the perspective, right, that actually took a mass strike wave, unlike anything that we've seen in our lifetimes? Well, you know, my... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think we've made a lot of progress. I think the fact that at least uh, certain aspects of the PRO Act will be included in this reconciliation package, at least theoretically, is a great sign. That said, I mean, I think we're going to have to keep organizing and keep pushing because uh, 
you know, labor law can help, but, uh, you know, in my experience as a lawyer, I think the law is pretty much always downstream of, of your organized power. Yeah. Um, great to have a lawyer saying that on the show <laughs> instead of just me or uh, Amazon workers saying it. Um, and I just want to give listeners a sense of some of the sort of numbers here. So with a rerun election, it's not impossible to win, right? I think it will be hard and it's a... So the numbers here, at least roughly, you know, a political scientist, Kevin Runig, looked at the NLRB's data yesterday after this recommendation came down, and he found that union certification happens just let a little less than half the time in a rerun election, which is a slightly but significantly lower success rate than original union elections, right? So the second time, it's harder. Um, and part of that is because workers have had to deal with all of the bosses' tactics, right? These anti-union campaigns, the fear tactics, the confusion, the exhaustion. Um, and that runs people down, right? They just want it to end. And, you know, if the employer can con- convince workers that the union is actually the source of all this disdain and distress and confusion, then that actually can work to get people to vote against unionizing. That said, you know, I wrote a piece for Jacobin about this today. And it's a big unknown because turnover is so high. As you mentioned, 150% turnover at Amazon warehouses nationwide. There's no data about Bessemer, but I would expect it's very similar there, Um, which means, you know, it's almost a philosophical question. Is this the same shop if it's all new workers? (laughs) Um, We might find out. Um, But so, you know, that could be bad um, in that these are that means many of the people who were pro-union are gone. It could be good in that it means many of the workers, you know, haven't been subjected to this indoctrination and these tactics. Um, But I think those are just things that people should be aware of as far as I think a lot of the sort of initial responses you might find to this news is like, this is great. You know, now they're going to get a union. And that is totally not the case. It once again, I think, is a matter of organizing and maybe even more so than in a more traditional workplace in that it really might be a lot of workers who haven't been through this process before. So it might look, I think, very different, which, again, does lead some opportunity for people to actually win if the organizing is done, you know, seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, uh, a, f- a friend of mine was commenting on this about how many takes there were after the initial results came out and said, I hope uh, we were all going to learn from those takes because this is, you know, functionally a new shop. Um, you know, I think someone referred to it as the bargaining unit of Theseus that just like we have replaced every part <laughs> of the me. shop at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's Theseus's warehouse. Is it the same <laughs> shop if it's all new workers? I guess we won't know until we find out in this second rerun. But it does seem likely that the rerun probably will happen. That does seem to be what the general precedent of how these things go with the NLRB. Um, so are there any other kind of takeaways that you would want people to know um, from your perspective about what's happened or what's in the report? Yeah, I mean, I think one or, or two kind of related last things that I, I, I want to note that I, I think um, matter both to kind of like whatever a second organizing drive look like and um, what organizing uh, in this moment looks like generally is both um, the the very low turnout. One of the main things that the hearing officer pointed to in deciding that despite the kind of big uh, gap between the no votes and the yes votes, um, that this might have had an effect is that turnout was actually very low, even in the context of other elections of this sort. Um, and I think, a, a frankly, related aspect is that um, the hearing officer noted that many of the workers who um, gave testimony could not name not only their coworkers but couldn't name their supervisor. Uh, these are are so incredibly isolating jobs that uh, <laughs> you can't even say who your boss is. I mean, that is a very difficult or, uh, environment to organize in, and I hope. Um, 
I hope whoever is doing this organizing, whoever is doing this organizing across the country can incorporate those new issues into uh, how they approach this work. Right. And can you just clarify, the turnout was lower even than other COVID um, era union elections that were mail-in ballots. So at things that were in a similar time period and a similar approach of not in-person voting, still it was lower. Why is that? Can you just sort of explain a little bit of what leads to lower than usual turnout? Sure. So, I mean, the 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 hearing officer's report clarifies that the 53% turnout in this election was lower, not just compared to, um, you know, other mail-in ballot elections, but other COVID-era elections. And the hearing officer says the record is silent as to the cause of that turnout. Um, if I had to speculate, um, I would think a combination of um, – that lack of connection and that difficulty in just having the kind of organizing that is necessary um, to actually move people to vote yes. And honestly, to move people to vote no probably had a big impact. Um, I think generally, like, and I I think a lot of people experience this in very heated, uh, one strategy of, of management is not just to get people to vote no, but to confuse the matter enough that people say, I don't know what to do, throw up their hands and just not participate. Um, getting people to not vote at all is just as much a union busting tactic as getting people to vote no. And I think a lot of the communications that Amazon was doing, a lot of the pressure they were putting on, you know, we, we talked about like the massive anti-union campaign made a lot of people just sick of it and not and, and decide to just completely disengage. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that convinced a lot of people that this just wasn't worth their time and they weren't going to vote in either direction. Yeah. And can you speak at all to what you would expect from a rerun? Do you have any speculation of your own about how that might play out or do you not want to guess? I I, uh, am a materialist, except when it comes to elections where I believe in jinxes. So I'm I'm not going to take a position either way. All I'll say is uh, the organizers have their work cut out for them, but uh, I believe in the working class. So anything is possible. I want to thank you so much for taking time out on such short notice um, and also giving me um, the cover of having a lawyer on the show to talk about this. So (laughs) I wasn't just spouting off because I certainly don't understand the ins and outs of the law as much as unfortunately, I think um, I do have to understand some of the labor law. It really does get um, kind of confusing. You know, I think a lot of people did read this as the NLRB making a a ruling, which we are far from that. Um, So thanks so much, Will. Uh, Pleasure speaking to you. Happy to be here. Great show. (laughs) Thank you so much. So having covered that, I'm glad everyone now is very informed. And I did write something that I thought would be very brief about this decision, but turn into 1,200 words. So that's up at Jacobin if you want to read more about the NLRB hearing officer's report. Now let's go on to the less newsy part of the episode. So Heike Geisler wrote Seasonal Associate a few years ago. It was actually years in the making. Um, The process by which she wrote the book is really interesting. Um, She goes into it, I think, in the afterword of the book. Um, She was writing, as we reference in the interview, post-it notes, little notes scribbled, you know, throughout her time on the warehouse floor. She was exhausted. She was raising children. And yet she managed to sort of cobble together a narrative of her time. Um, Notably, and worth mentioning explicitly, this is a fictionalized accounting of her time at the warehouse. I think originally, actually, in the nation, I did not call it a novelization, and I quickly got in trouble with Amazon. Um, But in fact, it does hew closely to both what she says in this interview about her experiences at Amazon, as well as what other Amazon workers have said on previous episodes of the show. Um, So I highly recommend the book. I had mentioned it on several episodes, and so it hit me that, of course, naturally, I should speak to Heike 
Um, she's based in Germany. And without further ado, here's our conversation. So Heike, to start, why don't you tell me about how you found yourself working at an Amazon warehouse? When was that? How long did you work there? And what were the circumstances that led to it? Well, it was like, I almost feel like saying once upon a time, because it, uh, it was in, 2000, in 2010. I was a young mother, mother of one boy. In the book, I say there was two kids, but that's just because now I have two and um, I did not want to exclude the other one. I guess I felt like I wanted to be a writer. I was a writer, but I was kind of struggling with the role, being a mother, being being a writer, maybe not, and part-time translator, or maybe not, and there was not enough money. And basically, that was the point. I was also kind of re- relying on my partner. He is um, more capable of understanding money and how it works and how to use it and how not to use it. I'm not really good at this. There was one day, and I guess I'm mentioning it in the book, when I saw some kind of desperation in his eyes because the rent was due and, um, and like, of course, you need money all the time. And that's when I, I thought, I really have to do something. I really have to go and find find a job. And I noticed there is there is no job for me and I don't have this skill or that skill. Oh, it's hard physical work, like moving and um and there only was this offer from Amazon that seemed like something that I could do and that would also provide in a way enough money because they were hiring seasonal associates so not only 10 hours a week or something but um 40 hours or 35 I don't know I forgot a week so that equals a bit more money and also it seemed interesting to me because of course Amazon was more interesting than it is now but back then I thought it has to do with the book industry and it I've never been there I do not know how this all works so it could be interesting and um, I applied and um, well it it worked out and uh, they they gave me the job so and this is how it started. What was so interesting about the job that made you write a book about it? Uh, yeah, very good question. And it took me, I guess, um, there were was a time of many obstacles. Also, many, many things happened in my life. And one of my sons got very sick. So it really took me a while to, to write this book. But it was also hard to find out what it was. And I guess this is connected to something like blind spots, where, where, which is always hard. You, you, you can't cannot know what you do not know. Like you cannot see that you cannot see in a way. And, and uh, it was... I had to understand it's not me being weak or it's not be me being nosy or whatever why this is not working out. It is not working out because it is not supposed to work out. It is really an evil environment that is just willing to make you suffer the most. Um, but of course, saying otherwise and, and understanding the deadliness of the job, the deadliness of this industry or this company... That was what kind of took me so long, which is now I think I see it's very open. Like you can, you, you look at it and, and, and you see it. It's so obvious. But back then I did not, I didn't know because I was, I was told, I was raised to, you just have to do what you have to do. You have to find a job and you have to work hard. Of course, work is hard and you have to take this in. And um, of course, you're not treated nicely. There is no right for, for being treated nicely. And to overcome this mindset, 
really took me a while, but it was like, well, maybe not a big step for humankind, but a big step for me. It's interesting that you already are sort of going to like how to make sense of your work in these jobs and your your own position as someone who's working this job, because that is what the book is preoccupied with. And you sort of, I mean, part of the power of, of the tone you picked and the, the genre and the structure is that we sort of see you dealing with the loss of individuality, right? So there's like this constant pressure at Amazon to sort of be like a machine, right? You're almost part of the assembly line. Um, and I'm just, I wanted to ask you about that. The experience of working these jobs, we've already had some workers on that have talked about this, but I want to hear, you know, from you as well, someone who's written about it at such length, you know, the experience of being turned into a machine, right? Like, how do you make sense of what you're doing on an Amazon shop floor? I really don't know. It is, uh, from my perspective, I mean, it is, I'm, I'm, I've like overcome this because I'm totally against structures like that. I don't see why they should be existing and why they should not pay taxes. They should be like all the, all the money they make should be turned into taxes. But um, so I did not make any sense of this. It was just for the money. And um, and of course, the, I mean, I took my notes, but uh, like I wrote down words that were interesting to me or um, products I had never seen before and that were so silly and nobody needs them, like so many more products. Um, but that was not making sense out of something. That was just... I guess, and um, it's like not the total truth, but and a bit uh, 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 exaggerated, but it was trying to survive, trying to, uh, I don't know, kind of make it through the day without being hurt all the time because you permanently, I mean, there is no friendliness or not, not really, the structure is not friendly and, um, and everyone is in a way able to degrade you as a seasonal associate you are not you do not matter and you feel this permanently and um, I was used to making my the own decisions and I'm used to making choices and the most important thing is I can make suggestions and I can say but this is like this does not make sense to me or this is not fair and there is no really working feedback structure it is all Everything, of course, has to do with the efficiency of the of the company. So that making sense, like even um, things that make sense in every any other aspect of the life of, of life, um, do not make sense in there because they are not efficient enough. And there, many texts have been written about this that products, uh, returned items, get destroyed, and this does not make sense, of course. Um, but it does make sense looking at it from the company side. So, and, and this is this is also very hard, I guess, for human beings being in a surrounding where you cannot make sense, um, which is cruel. And this is something that machines can do much better, I guess. But they are still, I guess, too expensive. Not much has changed. Right. I mean, you speak in the book, or you write in the book of feeling like you're a, you're sort of a stand-in that Amazon is just having workers until it can find the right machines that could do these jobs. Um, which, you know, to some people argue about how much you could automate these jobs, but it's certainly true that, at least in U.S. warehouses, they're starting to roll out robots and the injury rates go up when they do that. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but still, we are kind of the better machines because we have to buy food and we have to pay our rent and we want our children to have at least some kind of perspective so we can pretend we are machines and, and that we do not care. And I thought about this during the pandemic situation. Um, again, maybe what also was very hard for me is um, you said that it's not, there is no individuality and individuality is also crucial. Um, because we can see there's like a lot of ego shooters around and, and there, there is of course some kind of connection but um, I I also, I, I mean, I don't know if you know but I grew up in the GDR so a country where there was individuality was not the most popular thing and, um, and so I thought maybe this is also there is also a connection to this that I'm kind of allergic to this I like group experiences and I'm still kind of fascinated by by ideas like um, by utopia by certain manifestos by the idea of communism and so but but then again my personal experience is in a way different and I've seen how things did not work out and, and how people prefer individuality and but there is different concepts of individuality, of course, if you compare a political system to a company that um, there might be uh, uh, similarities, but certainly there's more differences. And I don't want to put this into one big pot, but but I this is something I certainly will ha- have to think about. How, how does this, how does my... Um, um, reaction, which was more than allergic than an allergic reaction, have relate to the way I was I was raised or where I was raised, where I grew up. Yeah, that brings me to a question I had to you about the possibility of changing Amazon. So the book I remember when I read it a few years ago, the English translation, it felt pessimistic. Um, like there was you talk about the both it's impossible not to resist at some level when you're working these jobs in small ways but the possibility of really collective resistance at the level that it would take to like you know institute real change at Amazon or take over Amazon radically change it you it seems like in the book the narrator does not see that possibility you quote um, the philosopher Byung Chal Hun about there's no way to form a revolutionary mass out of exhausted, depressed, isolated individuals. Um, and so I want to ask you about that to extrapolate a little more explicitly about what you saw as the possibilities and the lack thereof at Amazon. In a way, it's still true, but but um, it's like history seems to be proving me wrong because I, I know I've been to talk about the tech workers and, and they have... Um, They've done remarkable things and and um, have beautiful successes, but um, I, I really I think about this very often. Not only when it comes to Amazon, but also like uh, what is the potential for something like a revolution in in Germany? Well, not really a revolution, but um, people protesting for for better living conditions, for fairer, more fair payment. And I don't know what it is. It is exhaustion and it's also the complexity of the world and it is being, um, the the narrative is you depend on the job you have. And and so the, and this dependence is, um, I guess, the most important aspect that keeps people from really protesting. So the protest is, 
it might come from seasonal associates or from people who are younger, even maybe even younger than me, from people who do not have to take care of their children and have to contribute to structures they do not really um, like and would like to change but do not have the time. Um, so I, I can't really step away from this pessimistic or skeptical tone. I'm, I'm so hoping for for changes. But in a way, I would be more interested in in changes that do not make Amazon a better company. That Well, we could do that probably. I don't know how still, but I if... If you all do more research on the changes that have been made, then we probably know, or I, I could know more. But I I would more like to focus on all the, the aspect of being a consumer. And, and um, I guess this is where I would like to start. We do not have to be consumers all the time. And we do not need most of the things that are that Amazon is selling. We just don't need. And, and this is... Um, of course, that is like an individual responsibility, but the states or cities could step in and educate people in in and even saying you are not allowed to buy this anymore because it's really a bad product and you don't need it. And we have to look at how we live and sustainability and um, provide a future for our future generations. And and this, I guess, is much more interesting because I don't. I don't want this company to survive. I, I, I'm not interested in making it better. I, I want it to be gone. I'm glad you bring that up because I've, I've already in the show found myself trying to get people to really say what they actually think about Amazon, including a lot of workers who I think are hesitant to raise sort of the political objections that one might have to the entire existence of Amazon. Um, but I think, I mean, again... Part of what these jobs do is take away that beauty that you're talking about. So I think it's right to talk about a different type of work that could be more beautiful and and caring and good for the world. Um, you do mention the absurd products, and I felt like Seasonal Associates might Seasonal Associate might have been the first book that really provided me with a list of the products as they arrive at your position in the warehouse. Just a completely nonsensical, unrelated group of products, right? And uh, the scene that really stood out in the book is when the narrator sees a a book by a writer that she used to be friends with. Um, and you say, it was as if I were the chambermaid and he were the guest. As It was as if we were showing our true faces. Did this actually happen to you when you were working at the warehouse? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a friend of mine or used to be a friend of mine. And he was... Uh, and I guess he's the, he's the kind of best-selling writer, and <laughs> which I, in a way, never was. I mean, I'm I'm getting along. I'm I'm I like my life. Um, but uh, yeah, and and that was of course a very harsh moment in a way when you kind of see some like my reality shattered or the concept I I, I thought I was living and and the reality is I I uh, I'm working at Amazon and. Um, yeah, that was very disappointing. But then later also it made me very angry. And I guess being angry are, um, yeah, just is also empowering. And you do not yet know that back then I did not know what to make out of this or what will happen, but I just felt angry and I felt um, a certain power coming out of this. And um, uh, in a like more dialectic way, probably, but um yeah, things like that I, I still find interesting. Like, 
expensive being paid, not only the gender pay gap, but also if I look at my family, my, my husband, he's a photographer and he earns so much more money. And I'm a writer and I, I have like no chance of ever earning that much um, just because I don't know why, why there, of course, there might be explanations, but I don't think they are adequate. Um, and this, the moment of meeting him there in a way was very uh, complex. And, and it's something like a friend of mine, she, she is an actress and um, worked at the theater and then I don't know, she lost her job or quit and she met, um, or she was working for a production back then and, and not at the uh, city theatre anymore. And, and then she was also working at the zoo um, um, and checking people's tickets. And then the people from the production she was also working for came and they saw her. And, and there is still, I mean, this is the reality. Many people have to take on this job and that job and they have like two or three jobs which is dramatic because it is so exhausting and um but but it is also there's nothing to be embarrassed about and the the punishment of of uh, feeling the shame of feeling ashamed is one that should not be executed but we executed on ourselves so we are so trained and, and to feel guilty for for not earning enough money and this is uh, part of the complex situation I felt when I was holding this book and, and it was like I'm standing, I'm looking in his very fancy office and I'm dirty and stained and um, like 50 years older even, like the work has done its work on me and he is just sitting there and there's not... Oh, it's his beautiful junior suite and the beautiful hotel. And yeah, and I'm the chambermaid. And later he makes a mess in his room and I will have to clean it and not say a word. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Heiko, was about how you actually wrote the book. So you mentioned writing post-it notes and then typing up the notes later. <laughs> like that? <laughs> Oh, you have them right here. Wow. <laughs> Exhibit one. Yeah, but that is not, that's like not the historic ones, of course. Yeah, but they were exactly the same, like uh, yellow and um, like them. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to hear, like, how did you do that while raising a kid? And how long did it, you know, how, what was the process of getting the book to, you know, to print? I, uh, when I, when I finished working at Amazon, I, I decided, let's just be professional. Now, you have made this experience and it did not produce as much money as you thought it would. Um, as I said, um, I forgot I only like added a certain amount of money on my bank account and forgot that I also have like costs and have to pay for things. So that really um, is not something I certainly should should learn. And um and I decided, let, let's just be professional and, and write a book about it. And uh, like people do. And, and then, but I'm just not this kind of person because I noticed, okay, um, there is something hidden in it and I do not yet know what it is. I'm, I'm writing around something, which is the blind spot, or there's probably several. But I had taken with me all those notes and, and every day... Um, when I was at home, I was like writing diary and and um, being more more explicit about certain situations and and what I had seen and what I had felt because I I felt like there is the company is stealing my time and nothing will 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 be there after there 
they are taking the day, day after day. And when I'm at home, I'm I'm exhausted and, and there is nothing left for myself. So I thought at least just write down what happened, like a protocol. And this was the material later. And then I, um, I don't know, it's when, like, like while raising a kid is, of course, we are, um, we are two parents and uh, we do this equally. Uh, and uh, the son was, uh, Kazimir is his name, he went to kindergarten, or I guess it was a so-called Tagesvater, like uh, an adult person that takes care of five kids. And it's like a very small kindergarten. And um, and then he got very sick, so there was no working. So I tried in the hospital, I tried to um, work. And then, I don't know, I there were always periods when I decided, so now let's finish. And and then I finished, but then it did not sell. There was um, there were publishing houses were interested, but one really stepped back very last minute and never gave me a reason. And I don't know. And that's when I took the book off the market and decided to just I don't know, not deal with it anymore and um, write something else. And after a year, when it was Christmas again, I thought. I really want this to be published. And then I decided I'm, I'm going to rewrite it. make, uh, And that's when I really found out about the deadliness and, and that it was not my mistake why it did not work out so well. And then I wrote a chapter every week, I guess, and I made a recording and published a recording. And after two chapters, uh, a publisher asked me whether I wanted this to be published and... I said yes, and but I guess it was like the there was four years between working there and the book being published, and my life was very adventurous with this kid and I guess many other things and having to work. And I had a better job then. I was working as a secretary for a, for the local radio station, but it was much more boring. <laughs> but you could like be lazy all day, and I. I don't know. Also, I made notes. I made some. I did research during working hours, so there was not much to do. In a way, a very good job, but also like one of these bullshit jobs. Um, David Graeber is talking about. Like, really, you don't have to be there. Or two hours a day is enough, but not eight and a half. Well, Heike, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us. Yeah, thank you to Alex. Thank you so much. That was uh, uh, it was fun and also still very interesting for me talking about the company we all don't need. <laughs> <laughs>